So we're in this series, Being Good News to a World That Needs It, and pondering this week, not just the good news itself, but the way it's delivered, the way it's brought to people, and remembering a sad story in my personal history, when I had so much passion, so much zeal, it used to drip out my ears. I was a brand new Christian, just after years of pondering and realizing I really believe this stuff, but I don't think I have the guts to live this stuff. There was just too much pressure pulling me the other way, and I was yielding to that instead of what I knew to be true. And Because uh, I grew up hearing about Jesus, uh, always res- res- or often resisted him, especially through high school. Then after high school, I said, nonsense, I believe what I heard, and I need to live what I believe. I took a deep breath and started. And uh, not long after that, I got invited to be in ministry. Now, I'd never wanted to be a pastor. Uh, In fact, I'd rather be anything but a pastor uh, back then. I would rather have been anything but a pastor. I just wanted to coach football. And so I was starting to prepare myself for coaching football. And uh, since the call to ministry, that's another story I'll tell you some other time. But soon after that, I got an invitation to go to... uh, a large church in Sacramento where I was going to college at Sacramento State, the Harvard of the West, I might remind you. And uh, I was on staff there and thus began my ministry career. I was a youth ministry intern, living with a family, $200 a month. We were just ruining the church's budget, all of those interns. And we were doing, I was assigned to some high schools and I had all this zeal. And one time, here's the piece that I remember that is not such a pleasant memory. I was out to dinner with some friends and I wanted to make sure everybody knew I was not a compromiser. I was standing for Jesus all the way, baby. And so I got into a conversation with a lady who was at least 30 years older than me. I met her right there that evening. She asked me what I did for a living or something. We were, I don't remember exactly how we met, but we had just met. And she is older than me. And I think the way I was raised, therefore worthy of some level of respect. And uh, uh, so, but I had zeal for Christ and she needed to hear about Jesus. And so not long into the conversation, we got shifted to a theological conversation, partly because I manipulated it to be a theological conversation so that I could tell her the good news, right? Are you with me? Because we have good news and we need to be good news to a world that desperately needs good news. But it didn't go that well from her perspective. I walked out thinking, I am such a stallion for Jesus. (laughs) But the way I was showing it, unfortunately, was not very Jesus-like because within a few minutes, our disagreement became apparent. We were in a public restaurant, remember? And within a few minutes, I was standing up, speaking with twice the volume I'm using right now, reminding her she was standing, I was standing, I was looking down at her, and thus saying the lording her. You know what I'm saying? Thus saith the Lord. This is true and that's true. And the whole restaurant stops, looks up from their meals, and they're looking over at us. And the more I embarrassed myself from today's perspective, the prouder I was of myself back then. (laughs) Arrogant Christians. If ever there was something that should be an oxymoron, a conflict of terms, it's the term arrogant Christ follower, because there's nothing arrogant about him. An author was doing a study on uh, a new book that 
he was writing. This is by John Shore. And the title of the book, I don't know if you can read it from out there. I'm okay, you're not. The message we're sending non-believers and why we should stop. That's a book we probably all could read. So he surveyed a bunch of folks who weren't followers of Christ. He had this extensive mailing list to use. And he asked them a question. Here's the question. What would you want to ask that group of people now popularly characterized as evangelical Christians? The Christians that you've encountered. If there's one thing you could ask them, what would you like to ask them and email it back? And I'm quoting from him now. He said, within three days, I had in my inbox over 300 emails from folks who weren't followers of Christ across the country. Reading them was one of the more depressing experiences of my life. He said, I had expected it to be a message of anger. But if you boil down to one, the overall sentiment most often expressed by these folks' statements, it would be this. You ready for it? You probably have some guesses. He boils all of it down to this one question. Why do Christians hate us so much? Now, does that break your heart a little bit? In their experience, at least, and I know this is a blanket statement, it's not true of everybody, it's not true of the way we're perceived by everybody. But we all know it's too true, too often. That we're somehow presenting ourselves, the collective we, are presenting ourselves as followers of Christ in ways that when the conversation is over with, and that was certainly true of that lady in the restaurant that I met, why do you all hate us so much? Why so much hate energy coming toward us, they might ask in their language. And there are a lot of theories as to why Christians are so often perceived like that, or so many of us are so often perceived so poorly. And I guess almost all of those interpretations have some merit. But I ask the question, well, is it the message itself that feels so hateful? Because when we do teach that Jesus did teach, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The exclusive, that's called the exclusivity of Christ. You want to know the Father and be reconciled, come to me and I'll take you there. i get you there. Is it the message? Those claims of Christ? Is it what we believe about God that often contributes to the way we're perceived as people who hate? People hate our culture? Well, not according to the responses to the survey John Shore took. Here, for example, is one of his responses. I have no problem whatsoever, this non-follower of Christ writes. I have no problem whatsoever with God or Jesus, only with Christians. Because it's been my experience, he goes on to write, that at least in his experience, most Christians, now this fellow lives in Atlanta, so I'll let you add all that to it. He said, in my experience, most Christians are belligerent, disdainful, and pushy. And I hear him. I hear what he's saying. Because I was, and sometimes, I'm sad to say, still am, belligerent, pushy, disdainful, come off as angry, frustrated, impatient, authoritative in ways that aren't necessarily healthy, a theological know-it-all, 
that has the attitude, if I'm not careful to be really aligned with Christ when I'm talking about Christ, I, I, it's possible for me to come off with, uh, as knowing more than everybody else about every topic, theological topic, and considering myself not one who was humbly received and rescued by Jesus himself, but it's almost as though I taught Jesus and then set him up so that he could go rescue everybody. There's such an arrogance sometimes. I have a bad memory, and sometimes I forget. I act as though I've forgotten completely that I was in the gutter, and Christ, by his initiative, picked me up and called my name and embraced me and gave me new life and showed mercy to me, unwarranted favor. It's as though that happened to everybody but me. Me, I figured it out myself. It's a sad thing. You know, remember Marshall McLuhan, Professor Marshall McLuhan, the, uh, the great Canadian teacher? He, he was, I was a rhetoric major. So in rhetoric and communications, Marshall McLuhan is the Jesus Christ of rhetoric and communications. He was the dude. He was the, the chief teacher. And he came up with several statements, like the idea of a global village. That's Marshall McLuhan. But the one that we heard most often was, the medium is the message. Do you know what that means? It means no matter how pure your message is, there's something about the way it's delivered, the medium, the, the delivery system of the message actually becomes the message. So when you say, look, God is love. If you read that, it's one thing. That's the message. I can offer the same message by different medium and it sends a different message, doesn't it? That's a loser. God is love. Come on, and McLuhan was right. When it comes to the way Christians are perceived, when it comes to our attempts to be good news, to bring the message of good news, and to invite people to experience good news, when we bring good news to a world that so desperately needs the good news, we've got to remember the medium is the message. That's what they're going to hear. So the greatest hindrance to people experiencing the good news has less to do with the news itself than it does with the delivery system that brings the news. It has more to do with us than it does with the message we're actually bringing. Let me put it a different way. Look at this. If you were really sick and you had a disease that was going to take your life, and I told you, I have the medicine to cure you, we're going to have to inject it, how many of you would be interested in receiving that medicine from a syringe that looked like that? How many of you would be interested in receiving the cure to your illness if it had to be delivered by means of a polluted syringe? And that's kind of what's going on for a lot of people. I have no problem with God. I have no problem with Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. I have a problem with Christians. They are saying they can deliver a pure remedy through a flawed syringe, a poison syringe. And that's perplexing to me, being good news to a world that needs it. The idea that the church could be perceived, any believer could be perceived, much less any church could be perceived, whether it's Atlanta or Novato, could be perceived in ways that are described here. It should break our hearts. 
because it's so unlike Jesus. In fact, it's the opposite of Jesus. Arrogant Christian. Conflict of terms. Because it's so out of character for Jesus. Because he was anything but arrogance. Let's look at a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. With Jesus, as we compare our lives and the way we present ourselves, or here's important too, the way we allow ourselves to be perceived. So it may not even be the church presenting herself as arrogant, but when the ch- to the degree the church allows things to happen that allow her to be perceived as something she's not, that's something we need to pay more attention to uh, as well. That again is for another uh, message. We could dig into that someday when we're talking about this subject. But look at Jesus. There's no room for arrogance in the teachings of Jesus. He was intolerant when it came to arrogance. What, when you think about Jesus and his life and the things that got him all riled up, and then the places where he was not riled up, when you would think that we might be riled up, and the people that didn't bother him and the people that did bother him, isn't it interesting when you think about what it was that he could tolerate and not tolerate, when he got excited about arrogance and addressed arrogance, it was mostly with the religious community. He was spanking them down every day for that. No room for arrogance in his teaching. Look at Mark chapter 7 and the example of Christ. He says, and here's what I want you to notice as we read this. The word arrogance is in there. Listen to the context of that word and how Jesus, what he compares it to, what he says is equal to it. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. It's not what you eat, or it's what comes out of a person's heart that defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And then he gives examples of some of what he's talking about. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit. This is like the hall of fame of evil. Lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils, arrogance is an evil, Jesus says. Look at how intolerant he is. There's no room for arrogance in his teachings. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. No room for arrogance in the teachings of Christ. So how is it there's room for arrogance in the church that presents the teachings of Christ and the person of Christ. No, no, no. It was Jesus who said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want to see strength? Show me someone poor in spirit. Somebody not, in other words, not spiritually arrogant. Now, it can be someone who's spiritually certain Spiritually convinced, yes, but not spiritually arrogant. There's a tenderness, not a mental softness, but a tenderness of heart that Jesus really appreciates. He goes on just a verse later, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek, the poor in spirit. Those are the stallions of the faith as far as Jesus is concerned. No room for arrogance in his teaching. Another point to be made, there's no hint of arrogance in Christ's nature. So there's no room for arrogance in his teaching because there's no hint of arrogance in his nature. Matthew 11 jumps on the bandwagon of giving us some insight into the nature of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What's he about? What's 
What comes out of him when everything that's in him comes out of him? Listen, here's one of the many places that he talks about this. Come to me in Matthew 11, 28. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Move toward me. Come on, walk with me toward what I teach. For what does he say? I am gentle and humble in heart. That's the character of Jesus. I am gentle, humble in heart. And when you come to me, listen to me, implied here, no matter where it is from which you come, no matter what place from which you come, no matter what is in your history, no matter what you're carrying when you come, you're going to find rest for your souls, not torment for your souls. Shoot, Jesus might almost say, I'm going to put words in his mouth that he probably wouldn't accept. But I mean, it's almost as though Jesus could say in today's church, at least American church, you won't find torment for your souls for me. If you want that, go to my followers. They'll give you plenty of it. They'll make a list for you in the sand of all the things you've done wrong and screwed up and how they're so much better than you because they've forgotten that there are things written in the sand about them one day too. No, he says, come to me, no matter, no matter what you bring, come to me. And I will give you what? Rest for your soul. That doesn't mean Jesus is just saying, oh, let's pretend you didn't do anything wrong. No, the fantastic thing about Christ is that he's fully aware, more fully aware than we are of the burdens we bring and the mistakes we've made and the sins we've committed and the terrible choices we've made. When we're owning them, he's more aware than we are. And he still says, you come to me, you're mine. You come to me and I'll carry whatever it is you bring to me. We'll stack it on the cross and I'll carry it for you. Come to me and you'll find in me what you won't find anywhere else. Real, true rest for a tormented soul. I got you. The God of the universe, the one the scripture says created everything that has been created. The only one in one story of Christ who had the right to throw the stone doesn't throw the stone. Instead, picks up the broken person and helps them restart, get back on their feet. And listen, what a wonderful thing it would be if the church knew how to do that too. By the way, I think I'm speaking to a church. I've experienced you as a church that's reasonably good at this. But we can be better. You're already good at this. For the most part, people who don't measure up to the Christian standard, for the most part, feel like they have a home here. They come and you'll walk with them. We're not perfect by any means. You're pretty good. Keep it up. Keep doing it. Come in here. This is a place where you will be loved. And we all remember our own brokenness. And we don't dismiss yours or ours but there's mercy here because we've all experienced mercy. Now let's get on with it. That's what we're looking for because there is no hint of arrogance in Christ's nature. His core is humility and gentleness, and that's a strength for him. And humility and gentleness have nothing to do with uh, dismissing error. They have to do 
with strength to embrace the one who has committed the error, probably is already pretty fully aware of it. Say, come on, you're ours still because you belong still to Christ. And plus, we, we remember, wasn't that long ago, we were the ones with the broken leg. No hint of arrogance in his nature. No room for arrogance in his teaching. No hint of arrogance in his nature. And there was no sign of arrogance in the practices of Christ. This is the Jesus, I mean, in his engagements with those who needed the good news, you don't see him displaying any arrogance. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, we're reminded that he took on the form of a servant, not just a human, but of a servant, and then even submitted himself to the cross. I mean, it's humble upon humble, stacked upon humble, stacked upon humble. And the one that submitted himself to the Father and considered us more important even than his own comfort was then lifted up by the Father. And one day every knee is going to bow down and say, you know what? You are God. You are good. You are right. And I need you. One day every knee. What? opens the door to that global yieldedness, humility, a humble, assured love. There, there's, there's no sign of arrogance in his practice. This is, this is God who was surrounding himself with people who could do nothing for his reputation. In fact, they could only hurt his reputation, yet he still favored them. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, uh, to betray Jesus, and Jesus knew the Father had put all things... Oh, that's not the text I want to read to you. I want to read, oh, let me just read it from the board. Um, I was going to read there the, the idea that even Judas Iscariot, who was going to be betraying Jesus, there was room for him at the table even because he was, and Jesus even practiced mercy to him. Well, we don't have time for me to read that text. But I'll read this one. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house, reclined at the table, and a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So you... Pick, I mean, think of the, the lowest, the person, the woman in the, with the lowest reputation. This is a loose woman. And she comes in to this prophet. She comes into a Pharisee's house. Now, she had to be a, have a broken heart to even dare to do that. Interrupts dinner, goes right to Jesus. And the text is going to tell us she gets down at his feet without explaining anything and starts weeping at his feet. And look at how Jesus responds. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. So you see, she's already taken the low position. And probably thinking, this is the, I don't even deserve to be in here, but if I'm in here, the only place I deserve to be is under the table where all the feet are. And then she wiped them with her hair and she kissed them 
and poured perfume on them. By the way, do you know that the word worship, the root sense of the word worship, even grammatically, is, to, is from a low position to kiss toward. So you have the picture in worshiping, uh, in, the, in the word itself, of a group of people getting down at the feet of Jesus, our God, and then kissing toward his feet. So this is, in a sense, a very clear reference to her worshiping him. She poured perfume on them, and when the Pharisee who had invited her saw this, he said to himself, this man, to himself, he says this. He doesn't say it out loud. He says it to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would know uh, who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, and that she is a, a sinner. Now, there's no conversation recorded between that Pharisee and Jesus. He said it to himself. Jesus knows what's going on. She's got the woman at Christ's feet still, having just wiped his feet, washed his feet with her tears, wiped his feet with her hair, uh, poured expensive perfume on his feet. She's still down there at the foot of the table. Everybody around the table is still wondering, what's going on? What just happened? The Pharisee is indignant. He's the host. And Jesus answers him, even though he never verbally asked Jesus a question, Simon, I have something to tell you. Okay, go ahead and tell me, teacher, he said. Let me tell you a story. Two people owed money to a certain money lender, and one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50, and neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Remember, the woman is still at Christ's feet. The people are still all wondering what's going on. And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. And then he turned to the woman, he said to Simon. So Jesus turns to the woman, he's looking at her all the time while he's talking to the guy, Simon, over here. Pick, keep that picture in your mind. So do you see this woman? As though he's saying, do you see this woman? And making another statement, I see this woman. I see you. I came into your house, you didn't give me any water for my feet, which you should have. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, which you should have. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing not my lips or my cheek or my forehead or the top of my head, but my feet. And you did not put oil on my head, as you should have, if I were a prophet entering your house. But she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Just as her great love has been shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There is no room for arrogance in the teachings of Christ. Yet so many Christians have no problem with a haughty presentation of the good news of Christ. And that dirty syringe makes the whole good news holy, sour, and bad. And there's no hint of arrogance in Christ's nature, except, uh, yet so many of us have this negative thing boiling up in our nature. And we're so afraid of anybody who disagrees with us or becomes an enemy of our message or the church. And what Jesus says is, love them. This is the God who wept over Jerusalem. He didn't curse Jerusalem. He didn't throw truth bombs at Jerusalem. He didn't 
pronounce act good, heck with you then. He went up and he looked at Jerusalem and he said, I love my culture. I wish you could see things clearly like I see them. I wish you would receive me. I wish you wouldn't have rejected me, but I love you. I love you. Even though you broke my heart, I love you. I love you. I love you. And he wept over Jerusalem. I want to know when the last time was you went up to Mount Berdell and looked over Marin County and said, oh, oh, Marin County, please, please, please. I so love you. I so want you to know joy. I so want you to know fullness. And I said to my son Josh one time when he was really frustrating me when he was a teenager, Kind of goes without saying, I guess. I remember sitting on the bed. We were not doing well. And I remember saying to him, I think it was the Holy Spirit saying, be a real dad right now. I said to him, I want to punch you right in the mouth. (laughs) That's not the Holy Spirit part. (laughs) But I love you and I'm not giving up on you. You cannot break my heart enough for me to ever give up on you. One day you're going to look back, almost verbatim. One day when you're an adult, you're going to look back and you're going to say, Dad, how'd you do that? That's the Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. I'm not giving up on you. I love you. That's the heart of the church. That's the heart of Christians who have good news and want to present it so that the world that needs good news can experience the good news. We must have a heart change that says, Marin County, United States, California, world, we're not giving up on you. One day, you're going to look and you're going to say, thank God the church was there for me. Now, as I'm preaching that, I am fully aware that there are some in here saying, where were you saying that two years ago? And then to you, I just say, please forgive us if that's how we made you feel. But it's not how we are going to make others feel moving into the future. Why? Because there is no room for arrogance in Christ's teaching. There's no hint of arrogance in his nature, and there's no sign of arrogance in his practice. I recently came across an interesting definition of arrogance. I'm going to use it from now on. Arrogance, this definition said, is simply this. It's conviction without humility. Arrogance is conviction without humility. And here's the message. We need to have both, not one or the other. So conviction without humility, that's arrogance. Humility without conviction, that's just unhealthy passivity. That's indifference almost. But conviction without humility. So what is the obvious answer to the challenge When people are perceiving Christians as being arrogant and pushy and haughty and mean and hateful, it's conviction with humility. Don't throw away your conviction. Just add to it humility. Humility. That's what Mother Teresa, by the way, referred to as the mother of all virtues. Humility. Conviction with humility. Humility. Thomas Merton said, Pride makes us artificial, but humility makes us real. You know why we have such a problem with that? Because somewhere along the line, those of us who were raised in the Christian 
conversionist church, somehow we were taught this. Maybe it was more of a cultural thing. A culture, maybe it's culture-wide. Maybe it's not just the church, but we sure picked up on it. We were taught this sort of presupposition, and we hold this in our hearts, that to show that humility becomes a threat to your convictions. So when you show humility or tenderness or sometimes quietness or even take a pause and listen to what somebody else might have to say in their view of the world and the way things are put together, that to do that and to show the humility and mutual respect for an alternative view is a threat to your own convictions. It means your convictions are at risk. They're going to start fading away like water, like, a, like an overflowing river without boundaries. And we need to rethink that. Take that out of our heads because that's a lie. That's a logical error and it's a lie. Humility is not a threat to convictions. Humility is a servant to our convictions. The idea that we go to somebody and understand, I see it this way, I have Christian convictions, you don't, but I can still respect you. I can still respect you as a human being. I can still come thinking I might have something to learn from you. I probably have something to learn from you. But the fact that I'm open to learning from you doesn't mean there's a threat to my own solid convictions about what Jesus taught. That's simply loving another human being, engaging with them. It's not a threat to our convictions. Humility with convictions. I think that was what I heard John Gruden trying to express on Monday night in a Monday night football game. Of course, all of you are followers of Christ, so all of you watch Monday night football. I know that. Did you, anybody else, you know what I'm going to say? Did you watch Monday night's broadcast, Monday night football? It was the Eagles against uh, Washington, I think. Nobody watched it? You all aware that there's a World Series going on right now? You're all aware of that, right? Never lived in a place like this before. So, <clears throat> what is life without football? I don't. So, John Gruden. You know John Gruden. I mean, John Gruden's kind of a rough guy. He's, he's fun. He's an entertaining. He's exciting. But he's certainly not. Let's put it this way: We probably would not invite John Gruden to come and preach the gospel next Sunday morning here at our, cha- our stage. Although I think it would be pretty interesting to interview him and have him take a shot at it. So this sounded so weird to me. I almost fell out of my chair when I heard John Gruden say this. He really is enamored with Carson Wentz, who's the quarterback of the Philadelphia uh, Eagles. And Gruden is commentating. He's, Carson Wentz, he's, it's only his second year in the league. He's one of the best quarterbacks in the league already, and he's pontificating about his love for Carson Wentz, and he's brilliant. John Gruden's talking about how smart he is, how he reads coverages so quickly, and it's only his second year in the league. And then Gruden says this. It was so awkward hearing it from his, with his voice. He says, right in the middle of a Monday night broadcast, his faith is very important to him. Carson actually thinks his Lord Jesus Christ helps him play better, makes him a better quarterback. Good for him. And I heard Don, John Gruden say the words, his Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> I just, it struck me as funny to hear the guy. <laughs> but listen to this now. Conviction with humility. I think that's what Gruden was seeing in Carson Wentz and having a hard time explaining why it was so compelling to him because he goes on to say this. He's a young man of strong conviction and faith. But he doesn't try to shove it down your throat. He just sort of, Humbly lives it. It's conviction with humility 
And it's so magnetic that John Gruden mentions it on Monday Night Football while I'm sure the producers and directors are on the side saying, cut Gruden's microphone quick. He didn't know how to express it, but it was something that he saw. Look, in her zeal to win people to Jesus, the modern church has remembered to argue her convictions with lots of passion, lots of heat. Kind of like the passion and the heat I had boiling in me that night in that restaurant in Sacramento more than 40 years ago. But there's one thing the Church of Christ must never forget. If the good news of Jesus is ever going to be experienced by a world that needs it. And I think you know what it is. In honor of World Series time, I'll let Yogi Berra remind us. He said, look, folks, it ain't the heat, it's the humility. It ain't the heat, church, it's the humility. It's convictions with humility. Bringing good, being good news to a world that needs it.